So find the right investments to make. Um, make sure that we're uh, we're going to add our value in the right ways, and then and then help them grow. All that and more in this episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. I'm here today with my co-host Kelly. Hello. And today we have, I would say, the big SI episode. Um, uh, it's the first time that we're a large group, uh, unfortunately not in the same room, I would say, distributed uh, all over the US and Europe um, at the moment. Uh, but I'm happy to welcome first Jason Cottrell, um, CEO of uh, Orium, um, also its founder, Dan Bilpetti, um, partner at Tessera, and Michelle Swan, um, partner at Tessera as well. And we will discuss today what is an SI, why do you need them, right? So some of the listeners are not from the commerce industry or not so close. So what is actually an SI actually doing? Why are there so many? And then maybe the most important question of all in 2023, with generative AI, will there still be so many in the future? So I think mm -hmm. we have a lot of interesting interesting topics to discuss. We'll talk about composable commerce, um, what the direction is market, the market is going. Um, over the next couple of years. So thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. <laughs> so Kelly, maybe maybe you kick this off um, and explain to the audience what system integrators are, right? So the role that they play in our ecosystem and uh, probably switch sides, right? So uh, not, not have the commerce vendor perspective, um, but we're, how's it from, an, um, from a customer perspective, Maybe from his iPad. Maybe you can have three glasses on um, and give us a full view here. Sure. Um, so, speaking selfishly from a vendor standpoint, we need folks to implement our software and make our customers happy, because we're selling the equivalent of, well, I guess, commerce tools, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but we need we need carpenters out there. We need plumbers. We need people actually building stuff with our cool tools. And that's just not our business. Our business is entirely focused, and, and I'm a big believer that businesses generally should do one thing really well. We're focused on offering up those cool APIs, and we need folks to implement our software and make us successful. Um, SIs also uh, give us scale, which is really necessary. Um, you know, we, we just don't have folks in our services group. Um, and with our SIs, we can elastically scale out there to meet demand out in the market. And our customers need support as well. Many of them are going through these transformations. They need guidance from folks who have done this 20 times before or 50 times before. And that's where Jason and Orium and folks like him come, come into play. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a good ecosystem and uh, happy to have you here as guests. Yeah. So maybe it's now time that you introduce yourself, right? Um, maybe just uh, share three, four sentences um, about uh, what you're doing, um, career paths um, so far. Um, Jason, uh, as our partner, uh, why don't you start first? Uh, of course. So I'm I'm Jason Cottrell. I'm founder and CEO at Orium. Uh, we're a systems integrator. Been around for about 15 years now. Um, and really, it kind of formed our experience in some of the earlier age of, of commerce and DXP, but we always found along the way that we were doing just a regular volume of, at the time, headless, disposable wasn't really even a coin term yet, uh, headless 
uh, implementations. We also saw how challenging it was to, um, you know, go through the learning curve um, inconsistently. Um, so we really, we, we made a decision back in 2020 to specialize exclusively in composable commerce. Um, and obviously then brought on uh, a capital partner through Tercera, as well as made a number of investments in things like our software accelerators to really stand out in the category. Um, but we, we've been very excited to see the continued evolution of uh, kind of this, this composable commerce ecosystem as it goes increasingly global. Thanks. Um, and Bill, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and then also um, about Tessera because you're one of the few, if not at least from my perspective, the only investor who's specially focused on the uh, SI industry. Sure. So um, I'm Bill Petty. I am a partner here at Tercera. I've spent almost 20 years in M&A and had the opportunity to sit on both uh, the buy side and the sell side of the hypothetical M&A table. Uh, I started as a buy side advisor at KPMG, where I provided quality of earnings reports to private equity clients buying new platform investments, and then jumped to investment banking and was a sell side advisor to founder and private equity owned digital services firms. And then for the past two years, uh, I've been a partner here at Tercera and helped lead investments in digital services firms like Orium. Maybe before I jump into the Tercera overview, Michelle, I'll hand it over to you to do a, a quick intro for yourself. Sure, would love to. Um, so Michelle Swan, I'm a partner at Tercera as well. Um, my background is the complete foil of Bill's. I actually come, which is a kind of unusual background, I would say for a private equity company, but my background is more on the marketing, customer experience, PR side, which I think is why Bill and I make a pretty powerful team. Um, I'm on the board of Orium, as well as another company called Hakoda that's in the Snowflake ecosystem. Um, but I also support our own go-to-market efforts, marketing, um, thought leadership, and I co-lead our advisor community as well. So interesting background for a private equity company. Awesome. So as Kenny already explained to us um, the importance and relevance of the SIs, right? I, I would say SIs are helping to um, customize more standardized vendor solution um, to the requirements and expectations um, of the customers and helping them getting the most out of the products um, that they have purchased and then helping them also utilize that um, over time. But there are a lot of more terms out there right? So that, that we constantly use, SI, GSI, agency, and so on. Um, maybe, Jason, can you explain the common terms here and help us to separate it a little bit for the audience? Absolutely. And, and you know, the concept of SI or systems integrator and agency has certainly blurred over the, the last few years. Um, I, but I think if you go back to their, their roots, um, you know, system integrators more coming from a background of working with kind of core technical systems, but less campaign, less creative. Uh, and, and for many agencies coming from a background where, you know, they were or still are your agency of record doing campaign creative, running your, your marketing campaigns, uh, doing brand creative, and then maybe they've added some technical services. Um, you know, I, I would say that uh, um, while those lines are blurring, um, you know, I, I think we see more towards systems integrators um, in, in this ecosystem. Um, and I would say, you know, probably Orium sits more towards the systems integrator side, very strong in-house design capability, but we're not running customer campaigns. We're doing just enough to deliver 
award-winning e-com infrastructure. Um, GSI is really just an expansion on SI, Global Systems Integrator. So those, those are the big, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees uh, over a global footprint um, uh, and, uh, you know, often serving kind of a global market, but many practices, much more diversity in practices. I think the, where, where Orium has done well is we're, we're hyper-specialized um, and our customers have tended to value that. Um, so next for uh, Michelle and Bill, could you explain Tercera's business model? So who are your LPs, you know, otherwise known as investors? You know, how do you decide who to invest in? And what happens once you do invest? I, I know, Michelle, you said you were on Orium's board, but you know, what does that ongoing relationship look like? Yeah, I'm yep. happy. That'd be great. I'll, I'll start. Uh, and there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but to start, you know, Tercera is a growth equity firm that uh, we call ourselves um, operator investors. Uh, our team tries to differentiate itself based on our team's collective prior experience. Our mission is to partner with digital services founders who are looking to scale and really be the category defining leader in their technology ecosystem or their niche within the broad IT services landscape. And we try to do this by providing capital counsel and connections to our CEOs and our management teams. And what we mean by that, in terms of capital, we invest both primary capital to the balance sheet to facilitate organic growth investments, uh, as well as inorganic growth through acquisitions of smaller SIs. And then we also provide secondary capital to founders who are looking to take some of their chips off the table, but usually roll over the majority of their stake so that they can participate in, in future upside and growth. Uh, we believe the council piece of our value prop is really what differentiates us from other investors. Our team has deep operating experience, and as a result, we can help our CEOs and their teams see around corners and anticipate the speed bumps that come with scaling a services firm from 20 million to 30 million, and then from 30 million to 50 million, and ultimately 100 million and beyond. And then the, the last part of our value prop and the capital council connections is uh, we think our connections that we offer our portfolio companies, you know, this ranges from access to our advisor community, which is a, a, a network of more than 25 senior professional services experts who have been there and done that and have really deep expertise within uh, a functional function domain or area that's uh, a critical growth vector for portfolio companies like go-to-market strategy, brand, comp strategy, uh, how to complete integrations. Um, why don't I pause there for any questions? Uh, no, that's a, that's a good overview. Michelle, um, what does your side of this business look like? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I would say it's similar to what Bill uh, talked about. I think um, we, you know, we both work on the investment side, so we have to go out, find the best service providers out there that are in what we call the third wave ecosystem. So the ecosystems, uh, like what Commerce Tools is in, for example, that we think are going to lead this next generation of technology, um, really focused on kind of enterprise B2B customers. Um, so find the right investments to make, um, make sure that we're, uh, we're going to add our value in the right ways and then, and then help them grow. Um, and then I get the opportunity to work with our advisor community. So kind of matching 
where their superpowers are with the needs of our portfolio companies, maybe doing a little bit of counsel on the go-to-market side, um, especially as they grow, you know, from that 50 million to 100 million, things look a little bit different when a company grows that fast. Um, and then also, you know, we do a lot of research into these ecosystems, what benchmarks look like, what a great professional services company looks like in these ecosystems, and just making that available to our portfolio companies as well. Yeah, it's so helpful. And we have uh, obviously different types of investors at Commerce Tools, but our investors add so much value every single day. Having done this before at scale, I mean, that alone is, is worth taking the money for. That's yeah, there's certain playbooks out there. It's nice to not have to make it up. Yeah, no, it's very true. Um, so, Billy, you said you were an investment banker. Um, you know, what is an investment banker? A lot of people have heard that term, and how does it differ from what you do today? Sure. Great question. So, one way to think about the role of an investment banker is to draw a parallel to real estate brokers. So, real estate brokers help homeowners prepare to sell their house, position the home correctly, and then market it to prospective buyers and ultimately assist in the negotiation uh, with the buyer and the closing of the transaction. And investment bankers are very similar, except instead of uh, advising homeowners, investment bankers advise business owners. Uh, the investment banker will prepare detailed marketing materials that cover virtually every facet of a business. Then they will share those marketing materials with strategic buyers and financial buyers. They'll solicit uh, bids on the company and then ultimately help negotiate and make a marriage with a prospective buyer and then hold the seller's hand all the way to close. Gotcha. So um, let's get back to, to Jason. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about um, recent investments um, at Orion, right? So you, uh, for example, have built um, the Commerce Tools Accelerator, right? Um, great product, by the way, doing some some marketing here. Um, everybody should have a look um, into that. But that means you're building your own intellectual um, property. Um, what is the strategy behind that, right? So let's maybe formulate it a little bit uh, provocative, right? So on the one end, right? So as an, as an SI, um, you're selling consulting days, right? Um, at the end uh, to your customers, um, providing service here. Why do you build IP in parallel, right? So is it just to get more money out of the customer or how does it help them? Right? So that's a provocative part here. It, it's a good question. And I, you know, I think anyone, uh, if our own experience and anyone that I've spoken to running an agency or SI who's built an accelerator, these are loss-making entities. They're, they're not, they're not turning their company into a, a SaaS product. They're not, you know, making SaaS or, or, or even just licensed revenue that offsets the cost. Um, so the, these are essentially a, a cost of competing in the category. Um, I look at it one step kind of at a, a slightly more macro level. I look at our role in the ecosystem. I, I mean, um, uh, everybody in this composable commerce ecosystem has to continue to push to drive down the time and costs to bring kind of a, a typical solution to market. Um, you'll be doing that, you know, you're launching, you've got front end, you've got, uh, um, you know, productized features that you'll launch that just make it simpler and simpler for customers to do what, you know, what you find market demand is typical. Um, part of our role is where we've got to bring multiple vendors together. Uh, accelerators can also play 
play a role in. Um, so the most common integrations that we write, once I've written it the fourth time or the seventh time, why would I charge a customer again to do that? Um, and that's where I think this category plays very well to the concept of accelerators. Um, so, you know, we, we take on the burden essentially on behalf of our customers of pre-writing the most common IP. Over time too, SaaS firms will productize that. We'll find certain integrations that just get done amongst all the SaaS firms. Great. We don't have to support that anymore. Uh, it's costing us money anyways. We'll, we'll move on to the next horizon. Uh, but we, we think of it as a, a, I think a key role for us to play in the ecosystem. And then yes, most definitely it delivers value for our customers because they can shape weeks, months, um, and significant budget off where they don't have to recreate the simple things. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Right. So for decades, software companies have squeezed out budgets, uh, uh, from from the brands and retailers um, on the one end, either for things they hadn't been able to use or hadn't been fully utilized. On the other end, for high service and maintenance uh, components uh, with little value adds. And I think now is the time for all of the players in the composable commerce domain to uh, increase or optimize on the time to value um, for our customers, right? And it's time now to show that composable commerce is actually making things way faster and easier than it had been with the monolithic solutions that they had been used since I would say the early eighties, um, out there. And so definitely, definitely a move in the right direction. Yeah. Very much agreed. So Jason, another one for you. Um, you know, we'd like to think we're your, your one and only, but obviously you have other partners and that's fine. We get that. Um, what do you make of folks out there who have large professional services team in house, you know, the. That's a name names, but you know a lot of the the big uh, legacy vendors out there have full professional services teams that are competing. Um, not that you do legacy implementations, but I'm just curious how you approach vendor relationships when the vendor themselves can compete with you. Um, you know, I, I think the reality is it certainly causes a friction, um, uh, and um, you know we we certainly see then that. You know where we might be trying to approach you know what's what's best for the customer um we would see sometimes those in-house teams are looking at what increases their install base um and that can cause kind of conflict as well um so i, I would say that you know often that's coming from um a place of necessity uh you know it, it often reflects something around the maturity and capability of the product right they're, they're using services teams often to round out gaps challenges um or they're um accounting for the fact that maybe there isn't the market demand they want to represent the product among system integrators um uh, it, you know it's not the practice that si's are choosing to build so uh, in many cases I, I think it it uh it's not necessarily a good sign for the customer uh if a software provider can't produce a robust ecosystem of of uh, implementation partners, um, that I think is a warning sign. And I think also it, it means that eventually when you want to source talent, you're going to have a hard time finding talent in market that understands the software, whether it's through an SI or a direct hire. Um, so I, I, I think customers are becoming increasingly aware of that as a warning sign. If, if they're asking for a robust ecosystem and can't find one, um, uh, you know, they're cautious. They need to be cautious of that. Yeah, we ah. see it when when folks are not able to 
the, when the product has to be implemented by their own dev team in the house because there's something wrong with it. And, you know, we saw a lot of these vendors out there building basically mm -hmm. marketing and selling something that didn't quite exist. So when you have that, then you, you've got to have folks out there who, you know, from the development side of the, the vendor to go out and actually do the implementation. So it gets hard. Or you just need to do it for revenue, which also is kind of a weak sign too. Like link up. Yes, both are warning signs, and and um, you know sometimes that's at least done upfront with full knowledge. Uh, you know, a, a customer knows they're helping to be a launch partner on on a new feature. Sometimes it's not, and that's that that can be tricky. Um, I mean, I, I would say when you've got very established vendors like e-commerce tools in the category, why would you spend nine months? building a new feature with someone else when say commerce tools offers it turnkey uh, and it's robust and it's been proven at scale you know why are you going four years back um uh but um uh you know I, again I, I think more and more of the market is has you know educated themselves to to watch for those morning signs maybe a quick add-on question um to that jason um how's it with the customer if they have their in-house dev team Right. So sometimes you also need to work in a kind of hybrid environment, right? So it's not like 100% is, is done by Orium or 100% is done by the customer. Right? How's um, the work relationship there looking like from a, just a practical perspective? That's, that's very common. In fact, that's the more common engagement model for us than, say, a, a full outsource. Um, you know, our... Our customers are, are typically thinking very strategic about their strategically about their technology choices. Um, they don't want all of the knowledge to just reside with an external party. So um, we typically run kind of integrated implementation methods with team members dedicated on the customer side. I, I think that's that's one of the best things you can do. It, it should almost be an expectation because it it, um, uh, it it means that you know three, six, nine months from now, you increasingly can take more ownership amongst your team. It's going to yep. be a transition and often actually lowers the overall cost to complete the transformation. So I think it's just beneficial on so many fronts. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, Michelle, um, as Bill already explained the Tercera business model, I assume you get a lot of Bill. Uh, teasers, uh, opportunities to invest um, uh, on your desk every day, right? So you basically look at a lot of SIs um, and their core KPIs. What are the main things that you look at when you're evaluating them um, if you want to invest uh, into them? And what, for example, are red flags? Mm, great question. We do see a few, um, that's for sure. I would say there's probably three categories that we look at and I'll start and feel free to weigh in too. But I think the first of them is the the health of the business. I mean, that's what you would expect an investor to look at. It's, you know, are the margins strong? Is the growth there? Is it consistent growth? Um, you know, is attrition low? All the, all the things that an investor would look for. Um, but then there's also the future potential. And I would kind of put those into a few different areas. The first is just the ecosystem that they're in. Are they in a technology ecosystem that's losing share or are they gaining share? Um, scarcity in the market. Is there a scarce amount of resources? Are there hundreds of service providers that do the same thing that this one does? Or are there just a few in there? And then, you know, it's the moat. It's that IP that Jason talked about. 
um, that truly makes them different. And then the third category is is really brand. And you know, we talk a lot about brand external in terms of customers and what they think, but it's also the brand with the partner ecosystem and with their employees. I mean, these are people-based businesses, so if they can't get the best and the brightest out there, they're not going to survive long. Um, so I would say those are probably the three. I don't know, Bill, is there anything you'd add to those three? I think you nailed it. The one thing I would add is, you know, we also look for firms that have really uh, identified their ideal client profile. They they know and have found the repeatable project, whether that's a specific industry vertical, a specific set of problems. It's one of the things that led us to Jason. We felt like he and his team had really refined where their value prop resonated the most. And then that has a meaningful impact on your overall customer acquisition cost and finding that next client. And Bill, what would you say is the the main difference or what, what are what are the differences between SI-focused investing versus the more typical tech vendor-focused investment? Um, sure. Yeah. There's a lot of differences. Um, I think one way to, to think about the differences is just through the lens of uh, business growth and return target. So when it comes to traditional vendor-focused VC investing, VCs are looking for the next unicorn. They're playing for hyper-growth. They invest knowing that if they make 10 investments, one of those investments may drive the overwhelming majority of their return And unfortunately, several of the investments could go to zero. So there is this huge volatility in the return distribution of traditional vendor-focused VCs. Another way to say it is, you know, uh, vendor-focused VCs are swinging for a home run every time. Uh, conversely, from a return distribution for SI-focused private equity firms, you know, we're playing a game that's more akin to the theory behind the movie Moneyball. We're not aiming for for hyper growth. We're looking for consistent, profitable growth. We're not looking to. We're not trying to swing for home runs every time. We want to get on base every single time and hit as many doubles and triples as we possibly can. If you try to break down the the why behind the return differences, you know the, the two most important reasons, in my opinion, are services firms are on average. You know, less less cash intensive to scale, uh, and then services firms are also, on average, acquired earlier on in their life cycle. So the probability of that services firm becoming a two three billion dollar exit is just less likely. That makes it neither better nor worse. It's just different. And so as a result, our approach to investing is different. Yeah. And Dirk, you mentioned kind of what are the red flags too that we look for. Um, it's a great question. And I would say, I, I think probably the biggest one that comes to mind for us is just a lack of differentiation. You know, do you sound like everybody else? Do you have 15 different service offerings on your website across all these different market segments? There's 25 different industries that you work in. There's nothing that makes you special. And I think the, you know, the magic happens for companies when you're the best at the world, uh, best in the world at something. And so, you know, you're not okay at lots of different things. So I would say that's one of the big red flags that we look for, which I think when we get pitches, sometimes I think they think 
oh, look at all the stuff we do. Our market opportunity is so big. We need to talk about all the stuff that we do. But really, I think investors are looking for where are you special? And then there's, you know, just some of the other things like customer concentration or- Wait, wait. It drives me nuts. Oh, sorry. How, it drives me nuts how some of our SI partners pitch um, pitch to us. And if you look at their standard pitch deck, they list every commerce vendor, every commerce yeah. platform that's been produced in the last 20 years is, you know, because, you know, one of their architects did one of the projects 10 years ago, right? <laughs> it's now, it shows up on their, their NASCAR slide of the vendors that they work with. It's ridiculous. They, exactly. It's and interesting. Yeah. Customers know that too, right? Like they're oh, yeah. the same thing. Pay attention oh, well, to your pitch well. deck. <laughs> Diversification in today's world sometimes is a negative. You, you want to be focused and have deep knowledge and be a mile deep, not a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. And as an aside, that's what I see a lot of folks in the commerce space making. It's a mistake where they you know, try to be an OMS, and CMS, search, and you know they try to do a little bit of everything, but they don't do any one thing particularly well. So we've got a differentiated strategy in that regard. Yeah. And I would say one more thing too uh, that I would assume is something that you probably look for in your partners as well as just leaders who listen. Um, I mean, you'd be amazed at the amount of people who talk for the entire 50 minutes of an hour session without asking a single question. And I think that's a, that's a pretty big red flag because you wonder what they're going to be like with employees and customers too. Yeah, 100%. So Jason, you know, real AI is is finally here. And last episode Dirk and I did was a deep dive on AI. How does this impact your business both today and in the future? You know, it it's a great question. And I actually think it relates very much to the accelerators concept that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, Forrester's done, I think, some some great work on what brands should increasingly expect of their SIs, of their agencies. And it's essentially they need to come to the table with specialized IP. If if your SI isn't coming with that, that's a not. Uh, it, it should be the new standard. And I think that directly kind of relates to what more generative AI is going to bring to the table. It just, it furthers that. You know, the expectation needs to be that um, the staff that I'm bringing to the table are working with assistive tools that help them run faster, produce higher quality. Um, but I also think that you know, the fact that now within the accelerators, it allows us to have more supported integrations, more variants, more supported functionality, and to cost effectively maintain those on a loss later basis. Um, also, I, I think further adds value for customers. Um, and at least, you know, that accelerator concept, I think, you know, it, it's a concept customers get when we're bringing IP to the table. Um, so I, I see it really kind of building into that accelerator concept. Um, as well. Yeah, we're seeing changes already. I mean, we have customers, yeah. prospects that are doing self POCs with public trials and they're using AI to generate the demo that yeah. historically we or you would have done. It's remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're seeing it when we do demos of our accelerator. Now we can generate sample product con We can essentially generate whole sample storefronts into an industry now. For unique demos um uh, you know instead of a few days of time it's a couple hours to, to get the demo to where we want it to be hyper specialized for that customer's business um those types of things i, I think are just kind of very powerful things that just weren't cost effective to do before 
I got that. So, Bill, um, let's go to the the customer here. Um, when do you see folks doing everything in house? Um, maybe doing some staff augmentation, having a partner do a piece, or the whole thing? I mean, there's pretty broad spectrum there. And what type of orgs, uh, organizations do you think are are doing each approach? Why and how do you expect that to change? Sure. Sorry, that's kind of a broad question. Great. It's a great question. Um, yeah, I think the decision framework usually contemplates a number of different uh, factors or questions. Does the organization have the expertise today to complete the work? Does the organization have sufficient resources? Uh, do they have expertise in this area or is this net new for them? Uh, how episodic is the nature of the work? Um, how significant is the build phase of it versus the maintain phase of it? Um, in general, and I'm going to make some pretty bold generalities here, uh, I, I believe Staffog lends itself to lower value add, more commodity type projects and engagements. Um, if it's truly net new and mission critical, I think organizations prefer to do the model that Jason referenced before, where it's a combination of in-house with a partner that has done this over and over again and can bring the expertise to the table to ensure the time to value is there and the project's going to be successful. Uh, I also think there's uh, a pretty meaningful element of what the size of the organization matters. Uh, smaller organizations usually have to lean a little bit more on external resources. Larger organizations, while they may have the resources in the team to tackle a, a meaningful portion of it internally, they usually don't have the expertise. And that's where the value of Orium or any SI partner can really come to the table and help hold hands with their internal resources to, look, to deliver on whatever the business objective is. Um, Michelle, um, so as an, as an investor, right? So there's always a time where you go in and then there's also time where you go out, right? So you're at peace, uh, after six, seven, eight years, depending on how you structure the funds, uh, also would like to have some return of their investment. Um, not talking about Aurium now, right? So that's still at the beginning of the past. So there's a little bit of uh, time left to build up, but more in general, when you look at the market, right? So there's, uh, some consolidation now happening on the uh, Mark SI side, um, also on the vendor side. I think we expect more consolidation to happen actually even over the next uh, two years. Why are the GSI, so the large global SIs, at the moment already buying smaller SIs, especially given that the macro environment might not be overly attractive, cash is more expensive, um, to get. So what is the reason for that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and again, Bill probably, he's uh, he's definitely worked with a lot of the GSIs and their corporate development team. So he, I'm sure, has a view here too. But I think the biggest thing is it just, it fills a gap that they have right now. And um, you'll overpay for things sometimes um, when you need that gap because your customers are demanding it or you see what's coming in the future. And I think, you know, you guys talk a lot about mock and how that's completely fundamentally changed the way things are, you know, especially in the commerce space, but across IT overall. Um, you know, we 
we have this concept around this Tercera 30, we call it, which is, you know, these 30 ecosystems. And it is amazing to me how many of them are becoming more and more composable. Um, and I think that the GSIs see this trend happening and, you know, those skills are, are scarce right now. Um, it's a new skill. And so they're going to go find where those skills are, where they fill a gap, um, might be in a particular industry, might be in a particular technology platform. Um, and, and I think, you know, they, that demand is only going to increase. It's not going to decrease. I mean, same thing with AI. I think we're going to see a very similar thing with, with AI. I mean, GSIs are pouring billions of dollars into this and, and they're going to, you know, those skills are fairly scarce. Awesome. I think that's that's a wrap, right? We're getting to the end of the recording of this episode. Definitely yeah. a lot of things um, I think that we that we learned, right? So first from the Tessera business model, uh, I think it's uh, at least sounds to me pretty attractive for your LPs. Uh, what I understood is the SIs that you invest in need to have a clear customer value proposition, right? So something that makes them unique, where they differentiate it um, with a a promising market uh, looking forward. Uh, but on the other end, right, you have a low risk profile, right? Um, uh, because uh, normally business don't go down to zero uh, in that area. Um, that's different than on the tech space. Um, therefore, you might not have the same high growth profile, um, but uh, with this low risk profile, it's still, uh, yeah, being able to provide solid growth um, on the investment. So that sounds attractive. And well, Jason, Right, so um, always great uh, to meet you today virtually. Um, thanks for your partnership. Um, looking forward uh, to do more in the future. Of course, we have a lot of partners, so I have to say that others are listening into that as well. I think Kelly is now getting a lot of applications of <laughs> other partners of ours uh, to uh, join this podcast. Uh, we will sort this out, um, definitely. Um, yeah, thanks for being our guest today. Um, and thanks uh, for everybody to listening to this episode.